This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Hello and welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Daniel Avery, and with me in the studio this week is Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, the author of a bunch of books. Her newest is On Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World, will be out this fall. She serves as scholar-in-residence at National Council of Jewish Women and has a justice-focused Bible substack called Life is a Sacred Text. Danya, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I am so pleased to have you. And I love uh, the just sort of like no-nonsense bio move of just like, it's a bunch of books. Don't worry about it. Like, we're not going to name them all. We don't have time. I don't know. I You know, if you like feminism and God stuff, you can go Google me. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, don't worry about it. Some. (laughs) Um, Well, I am very much looking forward to... um, taking that sort of approach to our questions today, which are sort of all over the place, um, but I think are all like a little bit on the longer and thornier side, which I'm very excited to get a chance to kind of like spend a lot of time um, kind of thinking about like, well, you have a lot of options here. I wonder which one is the best. There's some intriguing possibilities here. Not going to lie. There are. Yeah. Would you mind reading our first letter, which might be the most intriguing of them all? I would be delighted to. Subject. Frustrated with fiancé's friends. The only drawback to being engaged to the most incredible woman in the universe is that she can find the worth in every person. So she has a group of friends that I really don't like. They're not bigots or anything. We just have incompatible personalities. And it gets more awkward and obvious to everyone but my fiancé. I don't mean this unkindly, but I've always felt like They were the kind of people who were allies, but they don't really spend a lot of time around the people that they're allying with. And they don't know how to relate to a brown butch lesbian, which is not necessarily a character flaw, but it's also not something I want to spend my energy on. My fiance is an angel and always tries to include everybody in everything. And even though she brings out the best out of everyone she meets, I just can't make myself like these people. I've been getting away with avoiding group hangs because of COVID, but now that we're all vaccinated and boosted, it's getting trickier. The worst part is she's already asked me if they make me uncomfortable or if I don't like them the first time I met them. But I was afraid that not getting along with her friends would be a deal breaker, and I really wanted to date her, so I lied. Now it seems worse telling her I lied and also I don't want to be around these people than if I just told her the truth. But she loves everyone so genuinely, and I don't want to hurt her or get between her and her friends. I didn't think much of it before, but now that we're getting married, I'm getting paranoid that this is a bigger betrayal than I thought when I just wanted her to like me. Is this a big enough lie that I have to come clean before we get married? Or can I just sit through any party I can't avoid for my girl as part of getting to be in her life? My friends are all now her friends, too, so it's not like we have to socialize separately. It's just this one group she's hung out into from college. Um, I found this very charming. Uh, like I, I just found the sort of like letter writers hand wringing, very sweet and charming. My first instinct here was, um, while it may potentially be challenging to talk to your fiance about how, you know, one group of her friends doesn't especially thrill you. I, I don't think you have to say you lied. Like, to me, reading that is like, she asked you one time if you liked meeting her friends the first time you met them. So, I mean, even if you did at that time have like a pretty solid sense of like, I'm not nuts about them. And then later that was borne out. You don't have to frame it as like, I lied to you. That was the first time you had met them. You've met them more since then. Like you can share it simply as like a developing story rather than like, I have betrayed you or like, I lied. Like you literally met them once. She asked you, how did that go? You said it was fine. And now you would like to share something else. I I would really, you know, I think my strongest feeling here is just to encourage this letter writer to have this conversation, not from the position of, 
I lied to you and now you must know the truth so much as things have changed as I've gotten to know you and your friends better. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think it's okay to say even I met them once. You know, I wasn't totally feeling them then, but I said it was okay because people, you can get to know people and, you know, it's even okay to to give a, a version of the truth that is open to the possibility that as you get to know people, you get to see other sides of them and you get to connect with them. That's okay. And here, it's, like, it's not, they're, it's not happening. They're not feeling it. That's okay. Um, and I really just want to name that couples can have separate friendships and separate social lives. And you don't have to be trapped in a one kind of friendship just because your partner likes those people. Like I I am married and I have friendships that the person I'm married to does not share. And that's okay. That's individuation is is a healthy thing Um, to say, go off, have a lovely night, honey. You know, that's fabulous. Go off with your friends. I'm going to see my other friends. I'm going to hang out tonight by myself. I'm going to catch up with, you know, a hobby. I'm going to catch up with homework. I'm going to catch up with, you know, whatever housework, whatever I need to do. That's okay. Yeah. I I think it will also, you know, potentially make any other choices you make about occasionally seeing these people a lot easier if you and your fiance are on the same page, like the letter writer sort of frames it as like, um, either I can talk to her about it or I will just like, you know, go to a couple of these meetups and just like get through it. But I think that again, you can always change your approach later if you find that it doesn't work for you. But if you want to say, I actually like don't feel incredibly comfortable around these people. It's, you know, I, I will, I'm, you know, maybe up for occasionally seeing them, but I just want you to know so that we can check in better. Like that will make potentially saying like once or twice a year or, you know, once every other month or so, I'm going to come with you to these events for like an hour and like put in my time, say hello, and then, you know, be done. And whether or not you decide to do that obviously is very much up to you too. But I think that that is something you'll be able to do more easily if you're on the same page rather than, if I tell her that I'm not nuts about them, our only option is to say like, well, you like them and I don't like them. And so I must never be in the same room with any of them ever again. Like you, you have many options available to you. Completely. And, and once that the truth is actually in the room, then the tension, the pressure and the angst comes completely out and it becomes, oh, there's a thing. Do you want to come this time? Or do you want to, you know, if you come, you know, maybe we stop by and we say hi and then we go off to dinner or maybe, you know, but it becomes a conversation that you can have as a couple and not um, a thing that you're trying to manipulate by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And I I want to leave open um, the possibility that letter writer, your fiance is already on some level aware of this dynamic. I wonder if part of the reason why after the first time you, I mean, obviously sometimes when you introduce a new partner to your friends, you just check in automatically afterwards. But like, it's possible that she picked up on some discomfort and that's why she had asked you that first time, you know, hey, do you do you like them? Was that okay? And so not that that guarantees this conversation is going to immediately be um, easy, but it does seem like she is receptive to the possibility that you might at some point feel like this was a little thorny. Um, and I really think that my strongest feeling about this letter was it's really front loaded with my fiance is an angel and, you know, letter writer, I don't want to like take that away from you or say she must be not that great. Um, or, or even, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's possible that some of that was a little bit like tongue in cheek or like, I know she's not really a saint, but you know, I'm, I'm trying to like generate a picture of her as somebody who is like always looking for the upside and perhaps doesn't pursue conflict. Um, but yeah, I would just say like the framing of like, she's the most incredible woman in the universe. She's an angel. So of course she's incapable of seeing somebody being, I don't know, a little rude, a little dismissive, maybe a little clueless, maybe a little thoughtless. Um, 
you can ramp that up depending on what some of these interactions have been like. But she is also just a person. And I, I, I guess I just wanted to raise that because part of me wondered if the letter writer felt more comfortable problematizing the friends in order to preserve this image of like my fiance is perfect rather than like maybe your fiance is wonderful. And also some of the things that you love about her, like her willingness to look for the best in anyone, um, also occasionally like plays into, I don't know, weak points, um, imperfections, like problems like any of us have, which might include occasional avoidance, um, occasional like missing an opportunity to stand up for someone you care about. Like, again, I don't know exactly what these hangouts have looked like. So I don't want to presume that like they were saying or doing horrible things and she was just looking the other way. But, you know, leave room here for the possibility that your fiance could change or grow or that you might want to ask her something new or difficult. And again, none of that means like your fiance is obviously avoidant and weak and bad and you should be angry with her. I just mean like, it's okay for you to say like, I have some problems with some of your friends. I'd love to talk about it. And like, consider whether or not you might actually have wanted her in those moments to notice something that she didn't or change something in the future that she hasn't done so far. Does that feel reasonable? I don't want to like go out on a limb here and say like, obviously your fiance is crappy. No, I know. I think there's, I think there's something really real there. And I don't know. um, Again, we don't know what has and hasn't happened in these spaces. And would these hangouts feel different if the fiance had intervened in some way and said, you guys, that isn't funny. Or, you know, I, I mean, who knows? Like, you know, had, had changed the the energy in some way. Um, right. Even if there wasn't like an incident or somebody saying something that was like overtly painful, maybe right. even if your fiance had just known after one or two sessions, you kind of felt like, oh, I didn't feel like they were, you know, making a lot of room for me. I would love it if next time you would maybe ask a couple of questions so that we could all Change get to know each other a little better. Or, so that we're yeah. not all talking about the, you know, whatever, uh, right, you know, yeah. whatever assumptions were being made in that conversation didn't include my experience, uh, right? There, I mean, there could be so many different things that that this could be about. And, you know, I, I think this dynamic of my fiance is an angel, I lied, is a dangerous thing to play Generally, and I don't know how often this is part of uh, our letter writer's thinking, but um, they're both people, right? And I, I imagine our letter writer is amazing and wonderful in a lot of ways. And the fiance is also a human being. And, you know, their relationship has to have space for them both to be fragile and, and vulnerable. and the truth telling, um, you know, is part of being able to name what's going on and and ask for growth and, and make space for their both both of their imperfections. I think as you were were saying, yeah, yeah, and like if your fiance is an angel, or even if she's just like a garden variety good person, she would, I think, want to know that you have felt, you know, kind of pushed off to the side or um, ignored or however you would describe those interactions. Like, I think she would want to know. Not, and, you know, it's really clear that you're not saying that these are um, terrible people that she shouldn't associate with. So I think you can free yourself of the fear that if you express anything other than just like, they're great, you're great, everything's great, that you're going to be asking your girlfriend to throw these friends away. Um, you just want to let her know a little bit more about what your sort of developing experience with them has been like. And it's possible, you know, if you bring that up in a relatively um, frank and low, uh, you know, low pressure way, she might say, you know, I'm glad you said something. I kind of wondered the first time, but then I wasn't really sure. And actually, now that you say that, I, you know, maybe share some of your assessments or like, I have also kind of wondered about this. And this might be an opportunity for me to reconsider whether I want to have like a conversation with any one or multiple of them, whether I want to simply scale back and think like, these are my college friends. They don't necessarily um, need to have like a big 
we don't need to have a big fight, but I might simply think of them less and less as somebody that I'm invested deeply in for the future and more just like buddies that it's occasionally nice to catch up with. Um, there's a lot of different ways forward here um, that don't involve her saying, I, you know, you've, you've, you've dropped the scales from my eyes. Now I see that they're awful and you then have to feel kind of guilty for, you know, making her drop her friends. That's not what you're asking. That's not inevitable. And um, I think there's more room here for the possibility of uh, the two of you t- to be on the same page um, than you might be afraid of. Yeah. yeah. This but, is not, yeah. this is not insurmountable. It's not insurmountable. <laughs> and, and if the, like the worst case scenario is just like, I don't love them. I don't think they're awful. I just don't really want to see them very often or possibly at all. And she will be able to say, okay, we'll figure out something else. Like as, as you say, letter writer, you have lots of other shared friends in common that you do all get along with. You're not saying, you know, I want to get married, but never talk to any of your friends ever for the rest of my life. So um, I think this is actually like a good opportunity for some like medium grade, medium stakes, um, light conflict uh, before you get married of the sort that any married couple is probably going to have to go through, even if they're both like lovely, wonderful people who want the same things. Totally. And you know, if you're going to like, marriage is full of light medium and heavy conflict opportunities. So this is uh, an excellent chance to practice and work on your conflict resolution skills. Yeah, my last thought there is just, you know, again, you don't have to share every single thought that comes into your head with your partner. But one thing that I think will serve you well in the future is if you can guide yourself away from thinking of your fiance as an angel who you have to shield from the messier parts of your personality because I think that will make you feel increasingly isolated. Um, and so again, that that's not like you should start like telling her every time you feel anger or resentment on any scale. But, you know, think of her as a loving and lovely person who can handle or should be able to handle hearing something difficult or non-ideal um, and that that's not like ruining her perfection. If only because that would that's going to make you feel um, increasingly like angry with yourself every time you experience frustration or irritation or anger um, and that you will then feel like that is a part of you that you have to keep hidden from her. And that is, I think, a recipe for difficulty. Word. And that's kind of it. If you know, if you are able to write back letter writer, I would love to hear either how that conversation goes or if there's anything sort of more specific um, that you can share about the nature of the the interactions you've had with her friends, I'd be really curious to hear a little bit more. Not because I think it would hugely change my answer, but it might be helpful to gauge. Like, I, I could definitely see some some scenarios where the letter writer might have even been downplaying the sort of um, experiences, and it's like, oh, I, I actually would go so far as to say, like, they kind of sound like assholes, but that's merely a suspicion on my part. All right, moving away from the realm of suspicion and into the realm of, um, I guess, uh, panic. Sure, I, I think panic is kind of the the theme of our next letter, and the subject is the bigger world is lonelier. I left a very insular religious cult, but I'm not experiencing the relief I was expecting. We were always warned about the outside world and its sins, and now that I'm living in the outside world, I kind of feel like they were right. Imagine learning the full history of the world, including slavery, genocide, racism, wars, etc., all at once, let alone trying to understand the structure in which Western society is built. I was escaping my abusive husband that the prophet married me to at a very young age, but the laws on the outside don't seem to protect girls much better, and girls don't even have the hope of being rewarded with heaven for their suffering. Climate change, the global economy, medicine for profit. None of these were issues that we had to think about in our sustainable compound. I have no idea how to talk to people my age and the slang and internet references change faster than I can learn them. When at least I used to have people around me who understood and cared if I lived or died. Most of the guilt and terror at leaving what I was taught was the only path to heaven is making me feel more alone than I've ever been. I'm not yet especially proficient with computers, but I am learning, and I wonder if there's a better non-religious way that young people meet and find friends that might be accepting of newcomers. Because although technically we lived on American soil, I feel like I need help adjusting to American life. I felt many distressing things in the compound, but I never felt alone. 
And it's tempting right now to go back to the fear I understand. Sweetie. Yeah, man, I I, I don't want to just like praise the letter writers like writing or self-awareness when they're clearly in such a painful moment. But that last line I thought was like a really beautiful encapsulation of what they're struggling with and what they're afraid of and what's tempting or reassuring about familiar pain. Um, that, you know, as, as they used to say in my own insular religious cult of a kind, it resonates. Yeah. 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 Where do you want to start with this one? I mean, first of all, dear letter writer, I want to validate your struggle and acknowledge that this is real. Um, reading this, I, you know, my first thought immediately is you need community. You need, you need your people who understand what you're going through. Um, in the Jewish community, uh, when people are, people grow up in also very, very insular communities in the ultra-Orthodox world and then decide to leave and often grow up not knowing English because they're raised in Yiddish and not getting any kind of secular education, they get a religious education and also um, wind up getting married very, very young. And, you know, a, a lot of the same things that happen in, in a lot of um, insular or fundamentalist uh, religious communities. And for people who decide to leave for whatever reason, there's, there's a lot of the same shock and struggle that you're describing um, is, is very real for folks. And in the Jewish community, we have an organization called Footsteps that is for people who are leaving the ultra-Orthodox world to, you know, kind of get acclimated and to, you know, meet each other and, and you know, it's, it's skills and community and da 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 and it, and it is, um, and it's life-saving for people because trying to do this all by yourself is genuinely hard, as you're describing, really hard. And I don't know what the equivalent would be for people outside the Jewish world, but I bet the internet does. Um, You're not alone. You're not the first person to have walked this path. And there are people who understand, who have wisdom for you and can help hold your hand and guide you. And you should not be forced to, to make this all up on your own. Uh, yeah, I, I think that letter writer, you know, I am tempted to assume from the language about like the prophet and the elements of like compound and like child marriage. My guess was that this was somewhere in the like fundamentalist uh, Mormon offshoot uh, groups, but there could be too, yeah. a lot of other possibilities. So I don't want to make that assumption. Um, if on the offhand chance that is uh, relevant, you know. I I know that there's like specifically the Mormon Stories podcast um, that is like organized around both um, current and former Mormons, people who have like either questioned or left their particular groups um, that you may find helpful, and that may point you in the direction of more like active in-person resources that might be available to you. Um, but you know, again, I don't want to just assume that that's what that is, so I'll just leave that one there. But yeah, I would suggest. Um, any kind of support from your sort of like greater religious tradition that might have resources for people leaving it. Uh, sorry, that makes it sound like the church itself would provide resources for people leaving. I don't mean that. Um, but anyone who has also left groups like yours, there may already be support groups or resources or training for people who have been in your position. And again, you know, without knowing a little bit more about your specific background, I can't offer like really specific resources. And I'm aware letter writer that you mentioned that you're not, um, especially like well-trained on using computers. So I would suggest maybe your local library, um, in terms of finding resources, that's often a great place to go. Often there are librarians who are specifically staffing the like computer and reference desk and who can help you look up materials. If that's something you feel comfortable with, 
if your public library is like still getting uh, staffed and funded, which obviously <laughs> in 2022 is a real big crapshoot, it might be open two hours a week um, by someone who's working nine jobs, but um, that is a potential avenue of exploration. And I would also, yeah, even just Googling like name of your cult, uh, support group, people who leave, like any kind of uh, related search terms might turn up something that's either remote or in person. Um, And just anyone leaving like a highly isolated, highly controlled uh, religious environment and trying to step into like a secular world where it, it, you know, very few things are as tightly controlled, very few things are as cohesive. Um, It can just feel really, really overwhelming. And, And I think anybody who has been in a similar position and is a few years out from it um, is going to be especially useful to you right now. Yeah. The other thing is um, I think a letter writer needs uh, definitely people who have walked this path and uh, trauma therapy might be useful. I don't know where they are and what resources are around, but Googling free therapy resources or, again, the library is such a wonderful resource to talk to librarians about how to screen for um, safe, reputable uh, clinic resources for free or very low-cost therapy options to, to be able to start to process everything that's happened and to process all of this input and all of this information that's that's coming in at this rapid rate and to be able to just have a place to to sort yeah yeah i think i'll offer one last sort of specific um resource and then i'll go back into the sort of bigger questions uh that, that were contained here. Um, one other possible resource might be uh, the International Cultic Studies Association. Um, their website is just the icsahome.com. And they have a lot of resources, both from clinicians um, as well as former members of cults, people who were raised as children in, in cult organizations. And they have like a whole library of resources on their own website. So there's there's even a particular page for former group members where there's like shared articles about like workshops for people born and raised in cultic groups, papers on anxiety and decision making, cold readings, kind of looking into uh, the different like techniques. Um, again, you may or may not find some of this work helpful. Um, I, I simply wanted to mention it as like a quick and easy way to like read something that doesn't necessarily involve like waiting for a, a support group to start back up again or for whenever their next meeting might be. So that might also be uh, useful to you. But, you know, getting back to the sort of like bigger questions outside of just like, where do I find a support group or where do I read more about like what people in my position might go through. Um, It's just this sort of question of, I have left. I don't feel relief. I feel overwhelmed. I feel disillusioned with the world as it is. Uh, That disillusionment in part reminds me of the persuasive, alluring nature of some of the answers to the problems of the world that my cult had diagnosed. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, you see the world is, in fact, uh, often a dangerous and a violent place. They always told me that that was true. I now can see with my own eyes that it was true. And so even knowing as I do the ways in which like this particular cult damaged me and other children, I also feel this tension within myself where I'm like, well, they were kind of right about the biggest core issue, or it feels like they were right about the biggest core issue. Um, and at least in that world, I knew where I stood. I knew what my problems were. I I might have been suffering or forced into a marriage as a young child, but at least I had this sort of sense of self in my community, which is incredibly, incredibly necessary to your just overall sense of self. So I guess I'll just start by saying, letter writer, it, it makes sense to me that you are feeling at odds and isolated and overwhelmed. And I'm so sorry that that's what you're going through right now, but I, I also really... I can appreciate why you feel that way. And I, I'm grateful for your honesty, both with yourself and with us here. I think that that will serve you well. Yeah. And 
Listen, I, I want to validate uh, what you're saying. The world is a place that has pain and suffering in it. It is also a place that has great beauty and power and joy and love in it. Both are true. And the reason that cults and extreme fundamentalist religions thrive is that they sell black and white magical answers that seem to offer an answer to the complexity and the messiness and suffering and pain and people struggle with complexity and messiness and suffering. And they say, great, I'm going to go there. It's black and white answers. That seems easier. And so they go to a place that is offering them the answer, right? And the extreme and the black and white, but it's not true. Listen, I'm clergy. I I am deep in uh, the space where people are are talking about the black and the white and the magical answers. And I am here to tell you that the honest grappling with what is here and what is real, which includes the suffering, is the way forward, right? That's where healing comes in, right? That's where... Our capacity for bravery comes. That's where our will to fight for a more just world comes in. That is where our unwillingness to let injustice just happen is, right? If you say, oh, well, that was, you know, this is bad. I'm going to run away. Then we are leaving people to suffer instead of showing up and saying we're going to be part of the solution. And when we choose to enter, even to face our own pain and to do the healing work and you can and will heal, you can and will heal. It will be hard. It's going to be a long road, but you will do it. You will find that in the complexity, there is beauty and there is truth. And this is the world as it really is. And that seeing the world as it really is, is worth a hundred thousand million empty promises. Yeah, I think it's so good to, you know, once you have acknowledged, it is understandable that I feel the way that I feel. And I can understand why seeing it all, you know, like just someone handed me a history textbook or like said, here are all the bad things that have happened in the story of the world feels like, God, they were right. Everything's bad. Um, and I don't especially want to try to like stress, like it's important that you find a worldview that, uh, you know, also stresses, you know, why isn't there a newspaper that publishes all the nice things that happen? I'm not trying to like sell you on the idea of universal balance here. Um, but I do want to say, let a writer that, um, and I I think that you might know this already, but it, it, it does bear repeating, um, that that is not the only story of, of the global world. Um, that is not the only thing happening on a daily basis. That is not the only thing that is available to you. And I think you have identified in your letter, um, you know, it's not that those things weren't real within the compound. It was just that one of the few upsides was that I was promised, um, and they mostly delivered until they didn't, um, that I wouldn't have to think about those things. So I think part of what you are you know, experiencing right now and that longing for uh, the fear that you understand is I wish that I could go back to a way of life where I did not think about these things. Um, and again, I don't know necessarily where you will eventually shake out in terms of your own relationship to, I don't know, nihilism or pessimism or realism or optimism. Um, that's a pretty open question. Um, but I will say, and I, I think you already suspect this, but I will simply say it. If you were to return to your former cult and you know pick up your, your life there, I think it would not, in fact, be possible for you to go back to not thinking about those things or for you to say simply, this will all get sorted out in heaven and everybody will ultimately get what they need and deserve. So I think it's a question of you would have to struggle with this whether you went back or stayed where you are. And so 
you know, if, if there's a part of you that is sort of like, but if I could go back, maybe I could also go back to my old way of thinking. Um, I don't think that that's likely. I don't think that that's something you can put back in a bottle in, in the way that you might wish to. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's true. Once you, you can't unsee what you have seen, can't unknow what you know. And so then the question becomes, what are you going to do with your knowledge? How are you going to use it to grow as a person? And how are you going to use it in the world? And there are a lot of really real and genuinely painful and hard things that you listed in your letter. And I bet if you picked one of them, climate change, right? You decide, okay, this is going to be the thing that I am going to to invest in. This is going to be where I'm going to invest my time and some number of hours a month. I don't know. Or, you know, once a month you dedicate or you do some learning and you figure out what your way in is to, uh, instead of watching a thing happen passively, to being part of a solution. Mm-hmm. You will, your feeling about all of this will change. Your feeling of terror will start to be a feeling of empowerment. And you will be able to see what you are capable of doing towards creating change. And whether it's climate change, whether it's changing healthcare systems, whatever whatever the thing is, like pick something. Yeah. I think that's really useful too, especially because I think that will also help the letter writer um, pursue their other goal of meeting other people their own age and developing friendships that are not either religious or um, really surface level. And so I think, again, like you you have expressed, you know, some some pretty powerful desires for justice for children and young girls who are exploited by, you know, churches, institutions, family. Um, and that's not to say like, go become, you know, a, go to law school right now, become a lawyer who who helps kids and then like, let that define your life. You might decide you don't want to do anything like that. But um, if there are any ways that you would like to try to find organizations that do useful work um, in any of the sort of areas that you mentioned as sites of deep, you know, desires for justice within yourself. I think that would be a good way to meet a lot of like-minded people. There are a lot of people organizing and doing good work around climate justice and um, trying to safeguard the the future. And so you may find that there are ways to meet people there. It's not likely that you will meet your best friend there the first day you show up and you will immediately feel a kinship of the soul. So one of the things that I'm also aware that is really difficult for someone in your position is you are trying to create an entire social life from scratch at the same time. Whereas many people get the chance to do it in stages over the years. They have some friends that they knew when they were children, some friends they met in college, some friends they met in their job, some friends they met through parenting or through partners. um, And you're trying to do it all at the same time. And that can feel really difficult because it's like every, I've, you know, even if I were to go out and make a bunch of new friends tomorrow, I would still only have friends I'd known for a day. Um, And that does not, you know, rise to the level of intimacy that like other people in your cult could could have in terms of how well they knew you. So, you know, I, I say that not to make it seem bleak or impossible, but just as a sort of reminder of like, that's the challenge that you're facing. Time and care and attention will eventually um, attend to that. But it is, it is in a uniquely difficult position that you're in. And I think that's part of why especially finding support groups for people leaving cults is going to be so useful to you because you will need people who maybe didn't have every single experience that you did, but who know what it is like to walk away and then almost immediately be seized by the sense of like, what have I done? I have nothing now. Not only do I have nothing, I am now still on some level afraid that I just gave up heaven. And I think especially that fear of I no longer hold on to this worldview, but I think often the last one to leave, um, if you come from a particularly um, like subset of uh, Christian subgroups is like the fear of hell and the loss of heaven is like the last thing to go. Like you might lose your faith in God, you might lose your faith in the institution. And then at two in the morning when you wake up and you can't sleep, there's a part of you in your brain that's like, 
but they were probably right about hell. Like it's not real, but hell is probably real. And I've just given up heaven. And that one, you know, that one's got legs. That one can trouble people for years or decades after. And you deserve to talk about that with other people who know what it feels like and to not feel alone or isolated or or crazy. Letter writer, I think you are aware um, you know, you use language of like my abusive husband. Like, I, I think you're pretty clear on the fact that your cult was not a good or a healthy or a safe place to to grow up. But I just also really want to reiterate, you may also, as you continue to live this new kind of life, even as you feel overwhelmed, bump up into new ways of realizing like, wow, that was even worse than I remembered or even mm-hmm. worse than I felt the day that I left. I am now getting more and more context. And I realize more and more again, like, wow, like that's a 13-year-old child over there that I'm just like looking at from across the coffee shop. The idea of someone forcing that 13-year-old to get married is horrifying to me. And now that I like see what a 13-year-old who isn't me looks like, I feel newly upset at what happened to me. And and that may be something that you bump up against as well. And so I I just say all of this, um, not to say like you need to start you know, binding up all of these wounds immediately and just like get on getting free, but to just really, you know, commend you for the work that you've already done to say it makes a lot of sense that you're feeling these things and that I hope you continue in addition to pursuing like movements that bring you deep, um, a deep connection with a sense of meaning and purpose in your life, that you are also able to seek out pleasures. Everything in life is not about like the grand scale of suffering. It's also really good to eat something delicious to, you know, pet a dog if you like dogs, to watch a movie if you like movies, to eat a piece of cake. Um, all of those things are good and valuable, um, especially if they don't serve any greater purpose. It's really nice to experience pleasure for its own sake. And I hope you get to do that as well. Yeah. How's everything going in preparation for the the new book coming out? I have to say, I was really excited about the title because I think the only times in the last few years that I've seen the word unapologetic um, in a book title, it's been uh, along the lines of sort of like, you know, I hesitate to like use a buzzword, but like the sort of girl bossy, like how to be unapologetic. And I kind of appreciate, and like they feel very like business manifestos. And so I'm excited to see something that's like complicating the word unapologetic is not necessarily like... Um, a site of of empowerment. Not that it can't be, just like searching for for nuance. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that book, if you don't mind. I would be delighted to talk about it. Um, and yes, there, there were some internal conversations about like, well, unapologetic is supposed to be good now. So why are we, you know? So the book is called On Repentance and Repair. Um, and uh, yeah, the subtitle is, is about, you know, an unapologetic world because we so often have a world that is literally unapologetic, refusing to apologize, um, committing harms without doing the work of repairing. And so um, the book starts, the introduction goes into why our culture is so reluctant to do the work of repentance and repair and doing a really thorough, meaningful, like taking of accountability and and meaningful cleaning up of harm in our messes, um, both in our personal lives and in the public square and in institutions and on the national level. And then I use Maimonides as um, as my guy, as my base uh, lens. Maimonides is a medieval Jewish philosopher, and he's got laws of repentance, but there are five stages of repentance that I argue he lays out. And I go through the book, and there's a you know sort of one chapter on repentance in our personal lives and how you what it looks like to apply these five stages in our personal lives. And you are quoted there. Then it's you know what does repentance work look like? in the public square when somebody who's really famous causes harm and what would it look like for us to to ask for more than just uh you know something that the publicist wrote and for them to for us to say great your publicist penned something you have not done any work you have not centered your victims at all you have not changed in any way you have not offered amends 
you are still committing the same harms. Here is your $7 million Netflix deal, right? Like that's not, what, what if that was not the world we, we lived in? What would we ask for? What should this look like? What is it? How do we know if somebody's really doing the work and wants to change and wants to become different? How do we, what do we look for in terms of people walking the walk and talking the talk? There are ways to tell. Um, can institutions do repentance work? Yes. Can entire countries do repentance work? They can do the work and they do all of it perfectly. Of course not. It's messy and complicated, but... Um, there are countries that have done better than the United States. So that's, that's kind of the book. Talking about how to, that's a little bit about the book. That is a, a fabulous and a wide-ranging description. I love that you were just like, do I want to expand upon the idea of which countries have done better? No, I'm done. <laughs> I, I'm done here. I'm not going to start ranking them, but you know. I, I mean, you know, I, I, the, the cases I look at specifically are, um, South Africa and Germany are my are my two test cases. Um, I do a deep dive on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission process and what went right and what was controversial. What was controversial about the process and what was unfinished there and why and what the unfinished business of the TRC, uh, what the impact of that is. And Germany's many, many decades ongoing reckoning with the legacy of the Holocaust um, has been messy. It's, you know, people sometimes like to hold them up as the country that did the repentance work and they did great and, and they have done some things right. And it has been messy and complicated and it, it has not been... Um, as easy a story as sometimes people like to paint it. And, and the United States with its uh, genocide and land theft of indigenous peoples and enslavement and centuries of systemic racism um, have, uh, of, of people of African descent, obviously, um, have the United States is what to learn. Yeah, that I mean, way. It's, 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 it seems to me like part of what you're looking at is like the difference between, you know, uh, how do we evaluate a country going through a process as specific as like denazification versus like a country that has not undertaken such a process at all. Um, and so the difference between like here are ways in which that process has gone well, here are ways in which that process has gone badly versus just what happens when that hasn't happened. Um, so it's it's less a case of like, one country good, the other country bad, so much as, uh, you know, in one place there's an institutional process and in the other there isn't. Um, and what do those things look like? And I, I appreciate very much too your, your attempting to look at repair and repentance in terms of like process work, work that can be evaluated, that can be not necessarily like universally replicated, but potentially codified rather than um, I think where it sometimes sort of stalls out as this very abstract, hazy idea of, well, maybe you'll choose to forgive someone and maybe you won't, but it's primarily to do with feeling and affect um, as opposed to tangible steps that can be measured or evaluated or, or you know, taken, um, I, I think is, is a useful and a necessary corrective. So I'm excited on that front, at least. There are indeed tangible steps and that can be measured and evaluated. And it's so interesting that you, you went to the word forgiveness you know, it's 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 funny because in Judaism, um, the work of repentance is on the perpetrator of harm. Uh, forgiveness is, I mean, it's complicated, but the big picture is that definitely if you haven't done repentance work, the victim has no obligation to forgive. And even if the perpetrator has done the repentance work, whether or not forgiveness comes into the picture is debatable. Um, so it's not necessarily about forgiveness. It's about whether or not you do the, whether or not you've cleaned up your mess. And, um, and if we want to talk about national repentance, I, you know, I think both Germany and South Africa offer useful notes and models for the United States. Um, 
Because, you know, they did, Germany didn't really denazify. Because, you know, the denazification was not so denazifying. Um, and there was a, a big role of grassroots movements, people coming up from the bottom. Right. And of course, like, I realize I said that as if, like, Germany came up with the idea. It was an allied initiative. So it was not as if, you know. Uh, but it the, didn't the, happen. Yeah. There were Nazis in power way into the 60s. Like, there's a student protest movement in the 60s because students were really sick of having all of their, like, they did not want to learn from Nazis anymore. Um, Notably, they did not protest about their parents and grandparents, which is a whole other piece of the cognitive dissonance. I mean, you know, we can go around and around and... How Germany got to where it got to big speeches in the 80s and big changes structurally uh, can show the United States what this could look like. If, if we wanted to do the work ever, which I do not think we do this week, unfortunately. Well, Tanya, on that note... I'm going to release you back into your life. Thank you so, so much for um, helping us wade our way through some fairly choppy waters today. Thank you. Thank you for letting me come play. I, I mean, it was a delight as always. Uh, it is always a pleasure to get to talk to you. And I'm very, very much looking forward to the book. And um, thank you so much for making a little time for us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm honored. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with a guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. Figuring out how can I like titrate uh, rejection just enough so that I can get over like maybe my initial fear of like that would be the worst thing that could happen to me. And I don't mean to say like you should go try to get rejected a lot because that's painful. Um, But it can sometimes really hold you back from uh, like reasonable ventures if you're just like the worst thing that could happen would be that somebody would say no to me. And so sometimes it can help to just sort of like automate it a little bit so you're just like all right if somebody says no to this direct question i've just saved us some time and i will feel sad for you know five minutes an hour whatever and then i will move on to listen to the rest of that conversation join slate plus now at slate.com forward slash mood